You know, one of the things you have to decide when you're going to go off and leave an institution or whatever and start your own business, because we trade in a systematic way, that's a, you know, it's, it's a quiet thing and it's, it's, it's somewhat of a lonely pursuit. You have to be very comfortable in going down this path and it's not for everybody because when you go down any entrepreneurial path, you're going to get told no, so you have to have fortitude and it is a fairly lonely path being an entrepreneur in general and you need to look inside yourself and say, is that the thing you want? Trading for a living is not for everyone. In fact, starting your own business can be a very lonely venture. And when investors look at a manager, perhaps this is one of the questions they need to ask. Are you happy doing what you do? Having a clear purpose with your trading and your business and knowing why you do what you do? Well, that's what we are talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. When to adjust or, or, or take those risks off. Mm. And speaking about these things, obviously without giving any of the secret sauce away, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've learned and, 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 and how you've dealt with that in terms of, you know, adjusting positions or even sort of exits? How, how does your program really differentiate at the end of the day? I mean, I know we can all use very fine terms and say we have volatility adjust and so on and so forth, but it doesn't really mean a lot to many people. So is there a, a, a more visual way that you can describe it without giving anything away, of course? I mean, we, we kind of touched base on this all, already, and that is, um, you know, really what is at risk to an investor. And this comes back to a philosophical approach. What's at risk to the investor isn't just the one unit of capital when you put on an investment. It is it is the mark-to-market gains that have been made. Because right. It, it is, you know, so we really focus on that. When you make mark to market gains, it is our job to uh, keep them. Um, that doesn't mean we want to cut them off. That means we want to adjust them when the uh, probability of keeping those mark to market gains changes. Right. Now, <clears throat> I seem, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember that one of the things, and maybe it's part of what you've just explained here. Um, but one of the things that you're trying to do is take into account kind of discretionary trading elements, but implementing it in a systematic way. Am I completely off base here or how, how does that, how nope, does that you're, fit you're, in? You're philosophically bang on. It is, it is uh, creating, uh, you know, based on experiences in our trading careers and lives, it, it boils down to figuring out what works and creating rules and process around it so you can be most effective. Um, you know, there's very effective discretionary traders if they have the discipline uh, from a risk management and capital allocation process. Um, we've tried to, our quest is to figure out you know, what are the better ways to capture um, mark-to-market gains and do that in a rules-based way. If you are going to describe it slightly differently, if I, if I could ask something like, what 
are discretionary traders good at? <laughs> is, is there a way to describe that? I'll give you my own version afterwards. But I mean, what do you think discretionary traders are good at? In, 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 yeah, in It's an important question. What discretionary traders have the potential to be good at is adjusting to the market environment. Okay. And the pigeonhole that CTAs and quants get thrown is, is that we build strategies for a certain environment and we can't manage the transition to another environment. And so the goal of all the system development that we do uh, is to develop strategies that adapt to the environment uh, in various ways. And that could be definitions of entry, exit, risk, capital allocation, um, you know, which strategies are employed at, at certain times. Um, but if you can, if you can, if you can make that adjustment, if you can adapt to that environment and wrap that in a, uh, rules-based mechanical, uh, element so that you get rid of the human emotion we all have, then you're better off uh, for it. I mean, you can look at simple analogies in business. You know, the, the handmade cars of the day, there's not many that survived. Mm. Um, the, the Henry Ford assembly line won the day. And, and um, you know, so it's about creating process. It's about making things repeatable. Um, that doesn't mean you ignore uh, quality. It doesn't mean you ignore what the right thing to do is. It means you try to be more disciplined about it. Here's my favorite analogy on this one. And that is you get on a plane um, and uh, the pilot says there's good news and there's bad news. Um, the good news is we're going to go to Zurich today um, from Calgary. The bad news is uh, the computer systems are down on this plane. Um, but, you know, no worries. Uh, both myself and the co-pilot have 30,000 hours of flying experience. Uh, we will get you there safely without the use of computers on this flight to Zurich from Calgary today. Um, are you staying on that plane? I know I'm getting off that plane because you're embracing technology as a, as a fail safe because we're human. Um, and, and it, it's not to say we don't know the right answers. It's to say we're humans. We get tired. We make mistakes. We get influenced. And so you're trying to take that element of, of humanness out of it and focus on the things you're good at. Yes. Adapting to market environments. And so this becomes the blend of, of, uh, rules based trading or, you know, non-discretionary trading with, a discretionary philosophy that that you have to adapt to a different environment. This is a very different environment in 2014 than it was in 2008. And we are being, you know, as effective as we were in 2008. It's a totally different environment. The strategies adapt to the environment. I have two observations here. Uh, one, I would actually add to your plane analogy, which I, I like very much, that uh, the, the flight from Calgary to Zurich is actually an overnight flight. So it's completely pitch dark. <laughs> so when the pilots look out, they see nothing. And that's actually what we do in trading. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't see exactly. anything. And, and so to say to the passengers that we're going to, you know, no worries, we're going to get you there. Uh, essentially, they're saying we're going to make sure we can adjust between all the other hundreds of planes that are flying over 
the Atlantic yeah. tonight without being able to see them. I mean, that's really what it's saying. While on the other hand, when we when we talk about systematic strategies, we're saying actually, you know, we have these wonderful tools, these computers that will automatically adjust the distance between the plane in front, the plane, in, you know, behind us, and so on and so forth. And that's a, that's quite important to to uh, to uh, to add. But let me. Let me just give you my own observation about the discretionary trading in a systematic fashion. What I discovered over time was really that what discretionary traders are good at, and I agree, discretionary traders can anticipate, which is something that trend following can't. But what discretionary traders, in my mind, is all about is that usually a discretionary trader wants to be a little bit more certain before he gets in. So he might be a bit slower. He wants more confirmation. So if you're trying to Uh, mirror a discretionary trader in a systematic way, maybe you want a few extra rules, a few extra confirmations before you jump in. But what is also to be said about discretionary traders is that they sometimes can be very quick to get out. And maybe hence that's why you look for these things or changes in volatility as a sign of maybe getting out early to capture the open the open equity. So I think that's another difference between the traditional trend follower and the discretionary type trader. And the third thing I would say that I've observed is that discretionary traders, if they feel really sure about something, they're likely to take a bigger position. And so that's the third element that I think yeah. um, if you can if you can put that into an algorithm, yeah. which you can, um, you know, those are the things that will differentiate slightly from a classical trend following model. Um, yeah, and I think I think those are the challenges for. Uh, this type of investing, you know, what you're describing, those are the biggest challenges right there. Yeah. How do you implement the system? Meaning, I mean, how often do you run it? Do you jump in on a signal uh, all in? Do you scale in? Uh, how, how does it work in practice? <laughs> you're getting into the nitty gritty. Um, you know, in, in general, um, so in terms of of information, we we look at everything from intraday information to to daily information um, from a price perspective, volatility perspective. In general, mm -hmm. our philosophy is to not scale in to uh, to put the full risk on at sure. times. That is in general. That's a blanket statement, but that is the overall philosophy. Sure. No, that, that makes sense. Now, in, uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, because you obviously have much more uh, experience with the commodities than compared to many other managers, do you, file, do you find it much more difficult to actually do get good execution when, when you're dealing with commodities versus the traditional financial markets? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, in some markets, yes, there's there's no doubt about it. Mm. Um, so uh, it, it can be a challenge. You definitely have to know your capacity and your liquidity constraints. Um, and those are, you know, things that not only get dealt with from an algorithmic perspective for us, um, but that is where the judgment and experience comes in as well. Sure. Now, I want to shift gear uh, to another important topic, which is really the sort of the risk management. And we've already touched upon it uh, in certain ways, but I just want to ask you a sort of a, a general question. And that is because you mentioned you're kind of a, a risk averse uh, person uh, to begin with. Mm -hmm. But w when you look at a financial portfolio, what is risk to you? How do you what is the measure of risk, in your opinion, that is most meaningful for investors and for yourself? 
It's interesting. This question literally came up uh, last night with one of our advisors, and I had sent him something sort of on a, a year-to-date update about uh, how we were doing. And um, one of the slides in there was uh, about the draw drawdown within the equity market. Here's the typical drawdowns of the S&P over, you know, 80 years. And uh, he said, well, help me understand drawdown. And it really comes down to that, you know, that as a key element. It's nice you can make a return over time. What is the path to getting there? Mm. What is that risk you have to take to make a return? If your probability, you know, if if over time the equity market gives you five to seven percent return, but you have to risk uh, 20 to 50 percent pullbacks, um, you know, every so period of time, um, that's a risky proposition. Then that comes down to you better be very tactical and have your timing right. And so that that drawdown element is uh, key to how uh, we view risk. And that being said, and I, I tend to agree with it, does that mean that you on a daily basis look at, uh, you know, how much am I going to lose if I get stopped out of every position every day uh, or today? Or, I mean, do you look at value at risk? Is it meaningful at all? Or how, how do you sort of equate that um, drawdown risk? We we uh, we look at value at risk. Uh, certain people put more value in value at risk than we do, mm. um, and so it's interesting to look at. Um, our definition of risk on a daily basis includes um, the mark to market, uh, the, the probability of losing our mark to market gains sure. um, on a daily basis. Speaking of drawdown, since you brought it up, um, which was very good because that's my next sort of uh, area <laughs> of uh, uh, discussion. Um, I'm not so I'm I'm not interested in in, in specific drawdowns. I'm more interested in in a couple of things uh, regarding drawdowns. Um, and the first thing is a little bit about uh, the fact that it's such a big part of what uh, these strategies uh, experience. Um, yeah. And and I think that's also why it m- makes it often a hard. Uh, product for investors to to be in because you're often in a drawdown um, how do you on a personal level how do you cope with the emotional roller coaster of being in a drawdown i mean i think i think that's the fight everybody has to go through you've yeah. got to uh, decide um you know is this style of investing for you and it really goes back to you know what style of investing is it's like it's like a long option strategy right it's a, a thousand paper cuts with with premiums paid and and bigger outsized gains um you have to have a lot of fortitude and patience in a strategy like this but if you've got to that place as not only an investor but a person um that that is the right way to to invest be patient wait, don't fade. Um, you just sit back and, and kind of watch the world happen. That doesn't mean you ignore it. That doesn't mean you're not trying to improve. That means that you try not to get wound up about these aspects as much as the next person. Um, you know, I'll say this. In, investing is is a challenge. You, know, you go up against everybody in the world. Um, so it's obviously a challenge. Um, but the bigger challenge is, is, uh, you know, running a business, to be honest with you, mm. and, and managing people and relationships. And, and uh, um, you know, 
once you get to that place of knowing what type of an investor you are, um, you know, you just, you have to decide if you're going to fade or not. And, uh, we simply, uh, you know, we simply don't fade. Mm. I, I, you know, I viewed the last few years as one of the greatest opportunities to, to get into the, to the CTA space. And, uh, in, 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 indeed, I mean, from, from that point of view, and I want to touch upon that a little bit later uh, on, on a, in a slightly different way, but, but let me ask you this uh, sort of as a general uh, observation since you've been around for a long time. Why do you think that the recent drawdown of most CTAs has been the worst drawdown in their career? Because that's, you know, a little bit unusual that we saw drawdowns go from, you know, say X to suddenly, you know, 150% of X, even though people had been around for 20, 30 years. Um, why do you think that suddenly changed? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think ours, ours are slightly, ever so slightly more than they were historically, but not uh, remarkably. Yeah, no, this is general um, about the, the industry, yeah, it's not yeah. specifically. Uh... Yeah, no, I'm just thinking in this context, um, you know, so are you asking what are the reasons for well, this particular situation? I don't know if you have some observations uh, about it, but but I mean, uh, an, another question relating to that is that, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, uh, drawdowns are, are, are can also be viewed as, as positive periods. But if we set aside the fact that they're the best time to invest in, that's for sure. But <laughs> but but we also, as 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 managers, we we often you know learn the most from being in a drawdown. That's kind of where we sometimes come out with the light bulb moment and say, "Wow, we could probably do it better uh, this way." Um, what have you learned from the drawdowns that you've been in? Maybe I should ask that instead. Well. Um we surely learned if we were committed to what we were doing and you, you know, and that happens every time you're in a drawdown. And so you come out stronger as a, as a investment manager and a person. Um, we have, you know, obviously like many managers, you're, you're on a quest to do better. And so what are those things? And you touched on them just moments ago, you know, how do you focus more on the things that are working and less on the things that aren't, mm. um, you know, how do you tilt your risk towards things that are working and, uh, away from the things that aren't, those are the challenges, um, that we have. And, um, you know, this particular environment has been interesting in that, uh, as I said earlier, you know, there have been. Uh, trends they've mm. been focused in certain asset classes and so if you either had the ability to identify that or the luck to to be equity tilted you you will have outperformed in that environment um, for us uh, we don't look at it as like hope we hope we're lucky type thing how do we identify that environment and how do we do better in our case we focus on on that you know, unconstrained multi-strategy type approach. What strategies have a, an ability to better do better in those environments? Um, you know, I think the biggest thing we learned is, uh, do we have a good business model? Mm. And, and if, you know, you're going to every strategy, whatever you are, long, short equity, we could go on and on. Every strategy has a period that's that's good for it, an average period, and then it has a period that this is going to be the combination that is the challenge. Sure. Every business has that. And the only thing you can do is, is your quest is to, to try to do better in those environments, not only for your trading strategy, but your business. And so in that time, um, you know, we feel in general, we've still 
grown our business, built our relationships, even though it has been a challenging period. Some of our strategies have done better than others um, in, you know, for different, uh, different channels, different investor types. Um, and, in, and in general, we just we work hard towards doing better in that time frame. But if you look at this summer, I mean, I, I was challenged greatly when you have people saying, you know, is this strategy type ever going to perform again? And, and, and the answer was, yes, it is. And yeah. in fact, starting June 1st, you could see some of those changes. You could see volatility picking up. If you have the right strategy and you didn't fade and change anything, change everything, then you probably started to perform very well and maybe even much better because you've been working hard to, to improve and to add and to develop, um, just as any discretionary trader would. And uh, so that's where we are. Sure. No, I mean, it, it was almost kind of my next question because I think what, what often happens at the time of the most distress and typically at your, you know, at your worst drawdown, you, you get under this immense pressure from investors who will, for some, say, oh, you know, see, it's it's not working, it's never going to work again. And, and, and we all know that's usually where, you know, that's the best buying signal you can get in these strategies. But it is very difficult. And and I think, I mean, I think you've answered it already, but, but, but you know, I, I wouldn't be so sure uh, other than to say that there must be people out there who from time to time when they're put in that situation, you know, a little bit of doubt creeps into their mind and saying, you know, maybe these people are right. Maybe these trend following strategies, you know, have had their, have had their, uh, you know, the best times of their, of their life. And, and maybe we need to do something different, but you know, as, as 2014 has shown again, um, they seem to continue to, uh, to do well. Um, it's very interesting. I want to ask you just a, a final question about these things. And that is you clearly focus on risk. That's a big part of what you do. And, um, but I wonder, is there a risk somewhere that you know you can't control and that kind of, not necessarily keep you awake every night, but once in a while you wake up thinking, hmm, I don't really want this to happen? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we always came at the markets from the perspective of, um, you haven't seen everything and if you can dream it, it could happen. I mean, I think back to, you know, trading natural gas when it was at, you know, uh, uh, you know, a buck 85 and, you know, it could never get to $3, could it? And it was at $3. Oh, I couldn't get to $5. And then, you know, it explodes and it goes to uh, 12 or $15 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And then, well, we'll never see cheaper than $7 gas again. And then you saw that in, in the summer of, uh, Right before September long weekend, um, 2001, you saw natural gas low back down in the uh, below $2 area, but that shouldn't have happened. And we've always had this philosophy of if you can dream it, um, uh, it could possibly happen. So what are the things that keep me up at night? Um, it isn't the investment side of what we do, uh, for sure. Um, it is running a business and the relationships is a very challenging thing to do. Uh, it's something I take very seriously and, and take a lot of pride in. So those things keep me up at night. You know, the only things we're comfortable with our investment approaches. Uh, is it possible that the, uh, the markets, the futures markets, the exchanges in general fail? Um, listen, anything's possible. Um, that one I don't have a lot of control over, so I'm not going to lose too much sleep over it. 
Um, but even then, we as, as, as quantitative managers sit in the best spot because even if the markets failed and the money disappeared for our investors, God forbid, you know, we're talking about a very small percentage of the capital. We run a margin equity averaging about six, six and a half percent. And so we, you know, we're in a strategy that is also very accommodative for that possibility. Uh, but the things that keep me up at, at night again are, are more the, uh, the business and people side of things. jump to another uh, area, uh, namely research. Um, and, you know, often you could say that research is about uh, and, and progress is about asking ourselves the right question. So I'm, I was just wondering, when you sit down with your research uh, team, um, what are the kind of questions you're brainstorming about at the moment that interest you as, as concepts when it comes to how do we capture trends, you know, better? Yeah, uh, we already touched on it. It's really how do you do, you know, how do you take better advantage of things that are opportune and, 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 and risk less or lose less in things that aren't doing well? And that could go by strategy. That could go by, um, asset class, sector, uh, particular markets. Um, how do you focus on what's working? And that is a really tricky and challenging thing to do. Uh, on the surface, it seems easy, um, but there are many, many uh, black holes there. And so that really is our quest. If it's, we believe we have, have good strategies and continue to develop good strategies as markets evolve for, um, you know, for a number of environments. But how could we do better? How could we risk less, mm. capture more? do better that that you know this is like how i start every right. weekly uh research meeting with our team is is you know that same topic to a, to a point of ad nauseum sure a question that i often get actually from from our listeners is when you run all of these models and uh you know you do your testing and you do your research but but how do you discover how do you detect if uh, if a model or it could be a market model combination is deteriorating and and perhaps is not you know any longer uh, a strategy to to pursue how do you, how do you what are you looking for in in that respect uh, we've talked about a lot of the elements i mean it's it's where the risk reward or uh, you know that whatever your definition of risk uh, starts to become disproportionate to the gains made so you do you monitor um, that on a market by market basis or is it more sort of a gut feel that Hmm, maybe we need to look at this more or no it's a, it's a market to market basis it's okay. a strategy to strategy basis um, we are trying to determine if these strategies are effective are they effective in the environment they were built to be effective in and and how do they do in the environment that's challenging for them and you're constantly monitoring those things and and if they are not being effective in the environment you think they should be effective in or that they were in the past what has changed and and do you need to make an adjustment and you know i can honestly tell you and this is you know not trying to say we figured anything sure. out but but it's it's mostly it's mostly making you know subtle improvements in things risk management improvements in things as opposed to you know what that just doesn't work anymore right um basic 
trend following trend capture wrapped in rigorous risk management capital allocation works mm. point blank and and the question is you know do you have the fortitude um uh to uh have the opportunity come along or do you blow all your bullets in the challenging period of time for that strategy mm. a big part of research team is of course you know an output which comes in the form of a backtest. And uh, there are many opinions about backtests, their, their validity and how much to rely on them and so on and so forth. In in your experience, um, you know, how meaningful are they? Um, and and more maybe more importantly, how should people go about um, performing a backtest so that it does become meaningful? Oh, it's a big topic. I mean, obviously, we look at back tests as a point of reference. Um, you take them with a big grain of salt. Sure. Um, and you then, you know, whatever your methodology is to walk forward or or test beyond back test is is important. And judging, you know, how did how did you think this was supposed to work? How did it work based on on the back test? And how does it work in reality? Um, we obviously do. You know, like many managers at this stage, you know, many things to ensure we don't fall into, um, you know, backtesting um, pitfalls and over-optimization pitfalls. And, and part of that is building strategies that aren't parameterized, for lack of a better term. They're not parameterized a certain specific way. In general, our strategies are parameterized so they can adapt to the environment so they're not stuck in a certain certain way, uh, meaning a parameter may be given the ability to float uh, through a set of values um, that accomplishes a couple of things. It makes it adaptive to the environment, whatever that parameter changes by whatever function. And two, it doesn't force a particular parameter to be the, you know, the holy grail, so to speak. So it's again, it's, it's allowing things to adapt and evolve. I think that's a really important point you just brought up there because I think that is the one of the biggest problems we have in our industry and that is you do your testing, you do your research and you end up selecting a number of parameters that looked great over time. But as we as we know, um, markets and environments change. So having that particular process, are you able to do that fully automatic so that the model itself picks whatever parameters it should do or, do, or, or is that part of the subjective uh, part of, of research? Uh, no. So it, it's done on an algorithmic basis. We don't involve ourselves in that on a day-to-day -day basis. The parameter ranges uh, come from the research process. Okay. So we look at what are, you know, what is a range that makes sense uh, that is robust um, and You know, again, I'm picking one particular sure. very small nuance here, but but uh, you know those parameters they adjust over time algorithmically. We do not do it with push of a button. Sure. Before I leave research, and I'm not sure whether this is the right place to bring it up, but I do want to just allow you a little chance to talk about it. I noticed in your uh, in the information that uh, you shared with me uh, something called the CTA Value Added Index, and <laughs> yes. and um, and I just wanted to ask if you could explain that and and how people might be able to use it constructively when they uh, look at CTAs. 
Okay, well, uh, I appreciate that opportunity. So the the CTA value added index is something that uh, uh, myself and my team developed here at Auspice, and it was in answer to investors in the last few years and similar topic to we're having who had this uh, philosophy of, you know, why do I need a CTA in the portfolio at certain times when the equity markets or other asset classes are doing so well? Is it adding any value? And it also came to a question of, uh, is it, 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 are there times in the uh, environment that you can identify that adding or overweighting uh, CTA exposure makes more sense? And so we wanted to uh, judge the value of CTA. So we used a, a simple index, the Barclay B Top 50. Um, and the idea was to um, look at the uh, rolling five-year uh, sharp ratio of the, uh, the S&P 500. So let's talk a very simple portfolio. Sure. And then what is the benefit of adding 10% CTA? So this is a very simple exercise. We know there's a benefit. The question becomes, is there more or less benefit at times? So you take that same 90-10 portfolio uh, with 10% CTA, in this case, the B top 50 index, look at that rolling sharp, um, subtract one from the other, uh, the 90-10 from the straight S&P and say, is there a value added to CTAs over time? And almost, you know, and no shock to anybody in, in this space, on almost all time frames, there's an added value. But a few other things, so we could demonstrate that. So that's nice to demonstrate to a certain type of client. Um, but there were some other things we learned, and that is that that value added um, index that spread between the two, what we call the value added index, goes up and down. Um, and so there's times when uh, CTAs add more or less value. And once you determine that benchmark, then you can look at different timing aspects, different scenarios of when to add or subtract CTA exposure. And so we did a white paper. We partnered uh, with Barclay Hedge. They've published the white paper. If you go to BarclayHedge.com, you can you can see the index level on a monthly basis. Uh, you can uh, again, the white paper is available, um, and it just gives you a window into uh, not only what is the value add, but when is the value add more apparent. So where are we in that? Well, obviously, in the last few years, with the equity market going straight up very high sharp ratio, even on a rolling five-year versus CTA, those two things have spread apart, the value-added index and the S&P, okay? And so what you can see over time is that when those things separate, um, if you look at it historically, and again, take that with a big grain of salt, that if you look at it historically, you can identify the timing elements to it. There's no guarantees, there's no crystal ball, but it repeats itself over time that when these things separate, uh, it is a more opportune time to invest in CTAs. This index went negative uh, late 2013 or earlier this year. And, and you know, that's a rare occurrence. These things are very separated. Um, and that signals a possible entry in terms of when to add CTA exposure. And lo and behold, what did we see? We saw, you know, in the first part of this year, we saw some retail investors pulling out of this market, uh, CTA in general, 
And what did we see? We saw some some institutional investors starting to weigh back into the CTA space. And it's obviously proved very fortuitous for one and not as fortuitous for another. And this is just a tool to identify that value and the timing. Sure. I guess that's also what caught my eye, that looking at the chart that uh, is part of this uh you know, it, 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 it essentially is saying it, there's never been a better time to <laughs> invest in a CTA. Which yeah, and I mean, you take you, yeah, you take that with a grain of salt. Sure. But, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, can we identify some some times where that opportunity may exist? You still got to pick your horse, sure. as we say here in Calgary. Um, you've got to pick a good manager. You've got to pick one that's evolving and adapting. But... Um, I think there are ways of identifying these opportune times. Sure. I mean, if, if you want, uh, feel free to, uh, to uh, send it over and I'm happy to put it up uh, in the show notes so that people can, can see it. It's an interesting read and it's certainly uh, you know, educational, which is uh, what we uh, try to do here. But let me Thank just you. go and ask you uh, a little bit on the business side. So we've got a couple of topics left and one of them is just a little bit about the business and then we jump to the, to the fun part at the very end. And when it comes to the business side, I'm really intrigued about the way you've diversified your business into these new products and and the approach that you take. But for people who are maybe not so familiar with it, can you explain what the difference really is between an investor choosing to invest through a fund, an ETF, a 40 Act? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's the pros? What's the cons? What's the fees? What's, you know, what's the difference? Because it's it's getting confusing. I mean, one, people have to choose between managers. Now they have to choose between different products of the manager. So how do we deal with all of that? So this is a really important question to our business. It, as a whole, you know, we believe CTA strategies are valuable. So we start there. We know there's value to the investor. The question becomes... Uh, what is the delivery mechanism appropriate for the investor type? Sure. Okay, so it really comes down to I view 40 acts, ETFs, indexes, funds, managed accounts, they're delivery mechanisms. That's it. And the question is, what's the right delivery mechanism for that investor that again uh, fits their need for transparency, liquidity, cost, performance, all those things? Sure. Okay. And so, you know, it, it becomes, if it's an investor, a retail investor who's trying to buy an ETF, well, certain things will fit into an ETF structure and certain won't. And the question is, do you have a CTA approach that can um, have the elements necessary to fit into that delivery mechanism? So we evolved our strategies such that we had a, a very good CTA approach that fit into that delivery mechanism. Okay, so it has certain different elements than, say, our unconstrained fund structure or managed account structure. Sure. What are the elements that fit into a 40 Act? Um, it's it's really looking at those delivery mechanisms and then saying, okay, what are the combination of return drivers that we pick from that could fit into that world uh, that meet that criteria? Um, cost is obviously, you know, cost is important, liquidity is important, transparency, transparency is important. Um, so we have a range of all of those things, depending on what the need of the investor and the distribution channel is. But if we can just be a little bit more specific here, uh, because I, I think it's 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 a very important for people to understand. What is it you can do in an ETF, or rather, what can't you do in an ETF, and what's the difference? 
I mean, how much does it cost to buy an ETF versus a 40-act fund or versus an offshore fund? What, what, are, what are really sure. the specifics if people had to choose? So in, in general, uh, where we started with the ETF path was you needed something that had an underlying benchmark, a published benchmark, okay. that, that then the market makers of the equity ETF units could replicate. Okay. So that has to be something that is known or transparent. Okay. okay? So uh, if the market makers are going to replicate what we do, they need to know what we do. So we chose a path where we took a CTA strategy that we went as far as having a third party um, publish the weightings of that strategy on a second to second basis. We okay. partnered with the NYSE. Okay. And, and then what can happen is that becomes, it's our strategy, a single, what we call a single strategy CTA approach that is published third party mm-hmm. that can then be, that benchmark can be seen, replicated, uh, followed by uh, the market participants. Okay. That Those are some of the elements needed for an ETF. So we start there. What are some of the elements, other elements? Well, there's not many two and 20 ETFs for various <laughs> reasons, including regulatory. Sure. So you needed a strategy that fit, in, in our experience, that fit less than 100 basis points. Mm. Um, you know, so I've, I've had other CTAs say, you know, so you've got an ETF that's, that's less than 100 basis points. Uh, with your managed futures index strategy, um, are you crazy? And, and the answer is no, I don't think I am. I've built a product that is yes, aggressively priced for a certain type of investor that would not otherwise have the opportunity, um, to invest in the CTA space. They're not going to buy a fund structure. Sure. Forgive me. Forgive me for interrupting just here. I just want to fully understand it myself. So essentially, where you make your money from an ETF is actually from the publishing of the underlying index. Uh, so there's there's money made by us in in certain ways. So you know, like any other manager, we make money on management fee and performance fee. Right. In the case of these products, you're talking about a management fee only product. Okay. Um, that we then split with the distributor of that product if there's a distributor in sales for selling that product. Okay. So we get paid a sub-advisory and management fee for uh, managing that product. Plus, sure. we could also gain a fee, depending on the situation, for the licensing of access to that strategy. Yeah. But if you wanted to add, if you wanted to have a performance fee, does ETFs allow you to do that? Or is it just you choose to have just a management fee? That's a whole nuance that, you know, is a, is a big can of worms. Okay. What I would say to answer that my own way is that we have chose to separate those strategies that, uh, that don't have performance fees right. that fit into the ETF and 40 act space. That is the approach we've taken at Austin. Sure. And, and the 40 act, just again, just briefly for people to understand the difference here. So you have an ETF, everybody can buy it. It's, it's exchange listed, I guess. Uh, and, and then comes something called a 40 act. Well, what do people do with that? So again, you're, you're talking about a mutual fund structure in the U.S. that uh, fits a certain delivery channel for uh, wealth advisors, RIAs, um, uh, very well. They're very sure. comfortable with that structure. It has certain uh, tax uh, implications if it's structured a certain way. Sure. Uh, and it fits and is very familiar to that investor type. Um, we use the same underlying strategies as our ETFs in the, uh, 
in the 40X space with our partners in the U.S. Okay. Um, again, the strategy was was uh, developed with these type of vehicles in mind. Right. Okay, I see. And then, of course, you have your normal funds where I yeah. guess most people are, are familiar with that. Okay, that's excellent. I appreciate that. I just want to ask you a, a, a general question, which I, I try to remember to ask everyone, and that is, you know, when you go through these uh, due diligence questionnaires or calls or whatever it might be, and, and I'm sure you've been through quite a few of them over time, what do you think that investors really should be focusing on when they try to evaluate what you do? Um, maybe they don't ask you the questions right now, or maybe only a few people do that, but where would where would you suggest that they focus in order to really appreciate um you know auspice capital wow that's a that's a great question um of course you always have these uh hopes and dreams when you go through a due <laughs> diligence process that that you get to talk about certain things and sure. oftentimes you don't um you know again at this stage Hopefully, the reason somebody's there from a due diligence perspective is you've already got past the numbers. Right. So, you know, the performance has been dealt with, um, you know, talking about where we think the performance is, is coming from, um, uh, you know, on those edges is a key thing that we like to discuss. You and I have talked a lot about those today. Sure. Um, but really, again, and we've touched on this is do they see us as a long-term partner? Uh, even if, you know, they're looking at it as a one and zero allocation, uh, you know, something very simple and binary, but we really look at these things as a partnership and um, do they understand what we're trying to accomplish as a business? Are they investing for the right reasons, not just chasing returns? Um those are things we like to discuss. And uh, at the end of the day, I want the best for my investors. So what we, what we talk about at Auspice with these, with these folks when they come into our building is, are you looking at the right product? What are you trying to accomplish? What are your goals? What are your benchmarks? Um, you know, what are those things? If we can understand what those things that they're trying to accomplish as investors, we can help them uh, find the right product within our suite or tailor something to their situation. Mm. So it really comes down to the collaborative uh, side uh, for us at Auspice that, that becomes the bulk of the conversation. At least at most times, that's my hope. Now, uh, the last section I wanted to, to talk about is just sort of general and fun, I call it. But I mean, it's really <laughs> partly for, for people to get to know you better. Sure. Um, and because I think that's really, at the end of the day, what, uh, what people are, are, are buying into. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the challenges of running a business, uh, which I completely agree with. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur or is that just what you had to become in order to become a trader. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you yeah. could have stayed with a bank, but you chose to yep. to do it your own way. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and those that do get to know uh, Ken and myself, uh, you know, we'll have this discussion. So, yeah, it was very nice and comfortable to work at a bank or an oil company. Um, you walk in, you trade, you walk away. 
Um, and, you know, there was something inside of us. We had lots of ideas. And when you're within a large corporate structure, even that of a trading organization, there's just constraints. You fit in a certain way. And we had uh, goals to take this skill set and do some more interesting things with it. Um, and uh, in order to pursue that, I had to go off on my own. I looked at opportunities to join other, you know, big brand name hedge funds, you'd know. Um, but it just didn't fit me. I, I, I had my turn at being with large institutions. I fit in certain ways. I did not fit in other ways. Um, and again, you know, it really came down to the relationship side, the creativity side. Ken and I are both, you know, what I view as creative people. Um, you know, again, like I said, musical background. Um, those are things that inspire us. Uh, and secondarily, or even, you know, more important, the, the relationship side with an investor or a client has been a game changer for me personally. I love meeting interesting people. I love meeting entrepreneurs that made their money a certain way um, by doing something interesting. Um, those things really get me up in the morning. And, uh, you know, being a mechanical trader, uh, a rules-based trader, um, it's like laying bricks. It's, you know, it's fairly, you know, again, by everything we're talking about, it's process driven, sure. but, but meeting interesting people, the ability to, you know, or sometimes it's the ability, sometimes it's the force to go travel and, and go to places to meet interesting people is such a, is such an honor and such a opportunity. Um, this has been sort of one of the big wins in my life has been meeting these interesting people, people you and I know in common. I wouldn't have met them otherwise. As a prop trader at, at, at a bank or an oil company, you have a very square myopic life. <laughs> and this has been the most uh, opportune period of my life. Um, it's hard work beyond belief, sure. um, but uh, it has been the most rewarding period of, uh, of developing who I am in building this brand that is more than just, you know, auspice as a label. It is, you know, it, it, we take it very seriously. We take a lot of pride in it. Uh, we're very proud of it. And, and we are very proud of the people who have led us into their world, whether it's a relationship or an investment relationship. So um, those are the things that are, are very rewarding to us. Sure. It doesn't have to be from your early days, but it could be from your early days, Tim. Um, were there any books that you read that influenced you heavily in terms of trading, but also maybe a different book uh, that influenced you in terms of your view on business or life for that matter? That's a, that's a really great, great question. Uh, so, you know, there, there's no doubts, no doubt that, um, certain books on trading definitely, uh, inspired me. That includes uh, Jack Schwager's books. Um, I have a ton of respect for the commitment Mike Cavell has showed uh, to this industry. Sure. Um, so that that definitely uh, you know made a bit of a difference uh, to me. Having said all of those things, you know I was sort of down this 
quantitative trend path far before I ever read one of those books. Sure. I think those things just spurred me on. Right. Um, once I figured out there's other people doing this and they've done it very successfully. And it's probably one of the bigger influences to say, go off and do it on my own. Mm. Um, more so than from a trading development standpoint, it was more from a, a business uh, entrepreneurial perspective mm. where those things influenced me. You know, in terms of of other things, you know, books that uh, have have made a difference for me. I read uh, the book "Starts with Why" by Simon Sinek. Yeah, um, it's about why you do what you do. Yeah, one of my um, favorites. It, yeah, one of my favorites. It really, it really impacted me. Mm. Um, really enjoyed that uh, that book. You know, it, it, this is a this is another one. It's a tough read, and there's a little story that goes along with it. Um, Dale Carnegie's book, "How to Win Friends and Influence People," sure. um, not so much because I like the book, but the story is when I left Shell in 2005. Their parting gift to me was uh, Dale Carnegie training. Okay, so that is public speaking. Right. Uh, that was a polite way to say I was not good at public speaking, could not give a presentation, and if I'm going off on my own to be an entrepreneur, I'm I'm fairly ill-equipped. Sure. And it was probably one of the most humbling things I ever did was taking that course and uh, you know learning you know about how to speak sure. in general and presentations and that sort of thing. So those are the biggest ones. I'm going to add one more. Yeah. Uh, there's so many, but. Um, uh, I would encourage everybody to read uh, The Prize by Daniel Jurgen, mm -hmm. uh, Pulitzer winning. This is, a, this is a account of uh, the history of the world uh, according to uh, the oil markets okay. and why things happened um, and how oil influenced things right down to the world wars um, and, and right from the first uh, well being drilled in Pennsylvania, um, I believe. Um, you know, it's 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 a big, thick, heavy read. If you can get your hands on the PBS uh, video series, I highly encourage it. I probably learned more about, um, you know, the development of oil companies, the Shell Oil Company, in that than I did in any other source. Um, so I encourage everybody to get in, in a perspective from that. Um, th those are kind of the ones that come sure. to mind. I think that that, that 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 that's great and and I think actually the last one you mentioned is, is is very very interesting because at the end of the day a lot of influential people would say that it all comes down to oil whatever we see happening around the world you know oil has something to do with it and and you and I talking in December of 2014 <clears throat> is an interesting time to bring up uh, oil I would say <laughs> uh, so uh, there we are now uh, on a on a personal note, I heard you earlier talk about uh, you know family. So I'm kind of assuming here that you have children, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm uh, mar happily married for 18 years now, uh, together with my wife for 21 years. So that's half my life. Sure. I have two children, nine and 11. Um, yeah, we live uh, we live just west of the city of Calgary, uh, in the uh, right on the edge of the Rocky Mountains, about an hour from Banff, Canada. We highly encourage people to come and uh, you know do diligence, come for a visit, and go for a ski and, sure. and, and 
enjoy the Canadian Rockies and uh, we love living here. And uh, uh, even from a business perspective, as I said, Calgary is is the heartbeat of the Canadian oil business and said third largest reserves in the world. It is a incredible place to be. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of opportunity and, um, you know, very, very proud to uh, live in this part of uh, Western Canada. Sure. No, I appreciate that. And here comes my question. My question is, <laughs> <laughs> my question is, if you could pass on just one of your skills to your children, what would it be? It's so funny you ask this because, uh, you know, as you raise children, Uh, some of the things that develop that challenge you as a parent that you try to control are the same qualities um, that as an adult are encouraged. And so I can say this as a parent, maybe someday my son will listen to this interview. <laughs> That fr frustration in being a parent to a child who is very, um, uh, very, you know, one way stubborn, sure. but very perseverant. Uh, is very challenging as a parent, but I would encourage you to develop that skill with your child um, as opposed to stifling it because that perseverance and that ability to not fade mm. is such an important attribute as an adult in every walk of life that if we stifle children, um, you know, who have a headstrong attitude, um, that may be the wrong approach. And it's challenging as a parent that way, mm. but uh, the ability to not fade and have fortitude is so important in life. And so think of that as you, um, as you try to be a good parent. Sure. No, I think that that's great. Uh, that's great advice. I got two more questions, Tim, and then I'll let you go. But I wanted to ask you, um, is there a fun fact about yourself, something that even people who might know you may not know about you. And I've had some very diverse answers to these questions uh, over time. So is there something that people don't really know about you, Tim, that you can share? Uh, I, I guess you used the music, uh, the thing yeah. already. So, so, that, so that doesn't count anymore. That doesn't count anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know if this is a fun fact. I think that uh, perhaps as people have met me in the industry, they know I've been very dedicated to growing uh, this business and, uh, um, you know, very serious about, you know, the, the investing we do. Um, you know, I'm actually a pretty relaxed person outside of that. Mm -hmm. um, I take what we do quite seriously and, and, and uh, you know, but I think um, people that get to know me uh, know there's a very emotional side. Um, I, I hope I take time for the friends I have. I'm very dedicated to them and uh, really enjoy um, spending time with, uh, you know, with friends and family. It's hard when you're running a business, but um, I, I'm very approachable. I maybe don't seem approachable, but I am actually very approachable. And I encourage people to reach out to me because, as I said earlier, um, this is the win in my career and my life is is meeting interesting people. As a prop trader, you don't. Yeah. And as as the founder of this firm, I've had the good fortune that that's been part of my role is to meet people. And I consider it a great gift. So I highly encourage people to reach out to me. Absolutely great stuff. Final question, uh, Tim. Now we've talked earlier about you know what you 
would like people to ask you when they come and sit down and do their due diligence. So obviously I have to turn that question to, to myself in, in some way, and that is uh, whether you feel we've covered all the important points today, um, if there's anything we've missed, something you want to add as we uh, wrap up um, this conversation. So I just want to make sure I do justice to to you and, and to your firm. Oh, that's a, a great opportunity. I think we've covered, uh, I think I've covered a lot of it. Um, you know, I would, I would add this, um, you know, it's hopefully not ending on a negative note, but, you know, one of the things you have to decide when you're going to go off and, uh, you know, leave a institution or whatever and start your own business um, is it, it's, it ends up being any way you slice it, you build an organization. Um, because we trade in a systematic way, that's a, you know, it's, it's a quiet thing and it's, it's, it's somewhat of a lonely pursuit. Mm. You have to be very comfortable in going down this path. Um, the amount of, of, uh, difference it is to trading for, uh, uh, an established organization. And it's not for everybody because, when you go down any entrepreneurial path, you're going to get told no. So you have to have fortitude. You're, 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 you know, at times you're going to grow from some small level and it is a fairly lonely path being an entrepreneur in general. And you need to look inside yourself and say, is that the, um, is that the thing you want? Now I'll flip it around to the investor. For the investor, one of the most important things they could understand about a manager is, is that manager comfortable in the path that they're in? Um, you know, are they comfortable being, you know, at a uh, standalone, um, you know, boutique, quant shop? Do they, you know, do they need a bigger infrastructure? Do they need to be at an institution? Are they comfortable where they are? Um, we started this company leaving Shell. You know, I still joke two guys and a dog in an office and, and had, uh, you know, a lot of dreams about products and ETFs and all these things. And we've slowly built it up. Um, but you have to be comfortable, uh, in that. And, um, and so I just add that little tidbit. It's not for everyone. Um, you know, you got to find the thing that fits your personality and, uh, and, um, and and your business model to be honest no you know what i don't think that's a negative at all to finish like that it's just keeping it real and you know that's what it is um and i think that's an uh, another important point to to bring up so i mean from my part tim um there's really only uh, left to say you know thank you so much for for uh, sharing your 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 story and the insights to to auspice um tell me where's the best place for people to reach out to you and 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 get to know uh, even more yeah so if you if you just go to auspicecapital.com and and reach out through the website it'll filter to me and um you know i highly encourage uh, people to do that you can find me on twitter you can find me on instagram um you know, I encourage people to reach out in any of those uh, in any of those uh, mediums. And again, if you've got something interesting to say, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. I'm interested in, in interesting ideas and disruptive thoughts, to be honest with you. So, um, you know, I, I highly encourage it. Fantastic. Great stuff, uh, Tim. And of course, also, I would just mention to our listeners that 
They can find a lot more details about our conversation today in the show notes uh, uh, for this episode on toptradersonplug.com. So anyways, Tim, I hope we can connect at a later date and uh, to get an update on the great work that you do. And uh, in the meantime, hopefully we'll run into each other at one of the upcoming conferences. You never know. (laughs) They're in the sunny parts of the world, so there'll probably be a lot of people uh, coming to that. So... That's great. I really appreciate it, Tim. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll catch up with you later. Yep. Thank you for the opportunity. It was uh, great speaking to you. You're very welcome. Take care. All the best. All the best. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.